Let me add my uh, good morning. My name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. We're glad to have you with us this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to uh, Genesis chapter 4. We continue our series in Genesis. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be up on the screen in in, uh, just a couple minutes. Uh, First of all, who was in church last Sunday at the 9 o'clock service? It's not like we're going to pick on you if you weren't. I'm going to offer my profound and sincere apologies for not finishing the story about the invitation to the wedding, about what it meant, uh, black tie invited. I had no less than a dozen of you come up to me after the sermon and say, Tom, I didn't even hear anything you said after that because I was trying to figure out what the answer to that question was. Uh, so, A, the answer to the question is it just means the same as black tie optional. That's what I found out. So I want to pass that on to you because I know that you can now sleep tonight. Uh, and secondly, I also want to just give you permission. If I ever do that again and I screw up the sermon for you and you can't listen, just raise your hand and say, Tom, stop. I'm, my pride is not that big, okay? Could you finish the story and I'll be happy to, uh, to do that. So I don't want to mess you up. Second piece of housekeeping I need to do before I start the sermon is this. Uh, two words, black walnut. I decided I was going to put a black walnut grove in my backyard. Uh, I have a black walnut tree in my backyard, thanks to Monica Miller. I, she gave me that tree 12 years ago, probably as a sapling. Uh, it's now almost 30 feet tall and uh, producing walnuts. And so I just, I've got a couple of dying trees in my backyard. I want to get those cleared out. I want to clear out all the brush, and I will put a little walnut grove in back there. So I got on the Internet yesterday to find out how to plant a walnut from seeds instead of sapling, because I have all these walnut, you know, the green things fall off the tree. Read all the instructions very carefully. You pe- what you got to do is soak them in water and then take a knife and peel all the skin away and all the outer edges till you get to the walnut. And then there's several other steps that you got to do after that. So I did all of that. And at the very end of this, this page, because I went back and looked at it, it said, and one of the very last things, make sure you put gloves on before you do that. They should have put that at the top. So uh, um, turpentine, uh, lemons, uh, orange scrub with pumice, Ajax, uh, pretty much everything but acid was tried at my house yesterday. Uh, and so I knew I used my hands a lot, and I knew, you know, you see, was he burned terribly in a fire? What, you know, did something happen? So I don't want you to be distracted from this sermon. Black walnuts, literally from the seeds. Uh, Cindy was crying. She was laughing so hard. She said, I love you dearly. You are an idiot. <laughs> she said, I think this is the stupidest thing you've ever done in our marriage. I'm like, Darling, we've been married 28 years. I cannot possibly believe this is the stupidest thing that I've done since we've, since we've been married. So uh, for the next, and please don't give me any home remedies after the, after the service. I, my hands can't take it anymore. So for the next couple of weeks, my hands are going to look like this. And uh, that's just, you know, uh, you can go home and tell people about your, you know, your idiot pastor. That'll be fun. Question for the morning on to more serious things. Uh, why is it our tendency to embrace sin? So I don't do that. Yes, you do. <laughs> I know because I do. Why is it our tendency to embrace and hold on to the very thing that causes us great harm? Why is it that we have such a struggle with what Scripture calls the flesh? If you read in Galatians uh, chapter 5, you'll see Paul nail this very clearly when he talks about the battle between the spirit and the flesh and how they both want to do each other in. The terminology he uses there is gladiatorial. It's like two guys fighting in the ring to the death. He says, that's how much your flesh wants to kill the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's how much the Holy Spirit wants to get rid of your flesh. But for some reason, we know that sin causes us harm. We know that it hurts us. 
We know our angry outbursts do things to harm our marriages and, and hurt our kids or, or put us in, in bad standing with the folks around us. We know that those lustful thoughts do us no good. They lead us down a path of destruction, and yet we seem to follow them time and time again. Why is it that we have such a stubborn tendency in that area? I was reading again this week about the, uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. I'm sure it's probably familiar to you. Back in 1973, a guy broke into a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, and for six days there was a standoff between the police uh, and this bank robber who had taken uh, several, I think it was either four or six folks into, uh, into his uh, captivity while I tried to negotiate a release. At the end of their captivity, I'm reading off of a, out of a book now, at the end of their captivity, six days later, these, these uh, folks who were held hostage actively resisted their own rescue. Later on, they refused to testify against their captors. They actually raised money for their legal defense fund. And according to some reports, one of the hostages eventually became engaged to one of her jailed captors. That's a picture of how you and I, at times in our lives, whether we're a disciple of Jesus or not, how we treat sin. We hang on to it. We hold it to our detriment. Genesis 4 depicts an abject refusal to acknowledge wrong and to repent. But it shows us this picture in the context of God's compassion. This is not so much a story of one brother murdering another brother. It's much, much more than that. It's a keen insight into the depravity of every human heart. And it's also a keen insight into the relentless compassion of God. It is both warning and hope. With that in mind, Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to pick it up halfway through the story of Cain and Abel. As you remember from last week, if you were here, Cain and Abel both brought offerings uh, Cain's was not accepted, Abel's was. I'll remind you about why in just a moment. Uh, and God warns Cain that he's in dangerous spiritual uh, position, that if he's not careful, sin's crouching in its, at his door and it's going, to, uh, it's going to master him. So that's where we pick it up in verse 8. Hear the word of God. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Some manuscripts add this phrase, uh, saying, let us go into the field. It's not in the original text, but it's, it's understood that that was the conversation. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were, as they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me for just a moment? Father, so often in our prayers, we, uh, 
we invite you to come and to fill this place with your presence. Father, the simple fact of the matter is you come whether you're invited or not because you are all-powerful. And you have a plan of redemption that you are going to work, sometimes through us, sometimes in spite of us. And yet, Father, it does our heart good to invite you because it reminds us of the relationship that needs to exist between us and you, a relationship where we worship you, a relationship where by your grace we understand and have perspective on our lives, a relationship that makes sense out of a world that really so often is completely and utterly senseless. Father, it does us good to ask the Lord Jesus to come and to be among his people this morning because it reminds us of the grace in which we stand, of the abundant life that is ours in Christ. Father, it is good for us to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us and to open our hearts and minds and to, and to knock down the resistant walls that we place, even as your disciples, because it reminds us that it is the Spirit of God that moves in our hearts that does ultimately the transformational work that needs to take place to move us away from a a life that is really surrounded by death and die to ourselves in order that we might live. So, Lord Jesus, we we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are everywhere. We know that uh, we don't need to bid you come. You're already here. But it does remind us of your glory and your majesty. And so I would pray once again that you would move me out of the way, that you would forgive my sin, that you would teach your people this morning what you want us to know, and that we would hear that and that only. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to run on uh, parallel tracks this morning as we go through this passage. And we're going to bounce around from verse to verse. But the parallel tracks are this. On the one side of the tracks, I want to look at Cain very specifically. And I want to look at his actions and his attitudes and his, and his interactions with God. Uh, the decisions that he ultimately makes. The conclusions uh, to which he ultimately come, uh, comes. And then on the other track... Uh, I want to look at God and his interaction with Cain, kind of in a similar way, the things that God says, the attitudes and the actions of God's and the conclusions to which God comes, uh, because I do believe this is a passage of both warning and hope. I think you'll see this morning, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, I think you'll see a little bit of Cain reflected in your own life. I think when you, when you look in the mirror, maybe later on today, you might see Cain's eyes uh, looking back at you just a bit. And at the same time, you need to understand that you need to see that in the context of God's grace. And I think this passage does both. So we're going to run down those two tracks. Uh, let me spend a few minutes talking with you and looking at this passage about Cain. I want to remind you last week as we, as we looked at the text uh, that we said that Cain was presumptive in his worship. It wasn't that God uh, wanted Abel to, uh, to sacrifice a lamb and he wouldn't receive uh, the fruit of the lamb, the vegetation that Cain uh, brought in his sacrifice. There wasn't anything wrong with the substance of Cain's sacrifice. We see in the book of Exodus when God gives the law that that type of sacrifice uh, was commanded by God to be brought. So there was nothing wrong with the substance. It was the attitude. Uh, we see that Abel brought his sacrifice by faith. He was trusting in God's graciousness where Cain brought his out of duty and out of a sense of obligation. And God, I demand that you accept this because this is my religious activity. And then when God 
didn't accept Cain's offering. Cain was sullen uh, in God's judgment against him. His feelings were hurt. He was, he was upset that God had looked into his heart. And so the question that, that we want to deal with with the rest of the passage is, as God warned Cain last week, he said, you've got to be careful, Cain. You're, you're in a very dangerous place spiritually. Did God, did Cain, excuse me, heed God's warning? So we're going to look at that this morning. In verse 8, it says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first thing I want you to see that Cain was dismissive in correction. He heard God's warning loud and clear. He didn't under, misunderstand what God had said. He simply dismissed it as not important or not applicable to him. Another way to say it is he was neglectful in warning. When God spoke directly to him and warned him carefully about the shaky ground upon which he stood, he simply refused to accept that word. The next verse, uh, after God says, you've got to be careful because sin is crouching at your door. Uh, you must master it, not let it rule over you. The next verse doesn't read, uh, and Cain repented of his sinful heart, and he offered a sacrifice of faith. It doesn't read that way. What we read is, is Cain's stubborn refusal to change course. Uh, every once in a while, I get that stubborn. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll see a little bit of Cain in me. Fortunately, I have a wife who I was sent by God to help me see it a little bit more clearly. And every once in a while, Cindy will say something along these lines to me. Tom, nobody can tell you anything. And I know you find that hard to believe about a humble, gracious guy like me. <laughs> but it's true. There are times where I get so dogmatic and so stubborn in my ways that I won't listen to anybody else. It's more important for me to win the argument than to actually deal with the issues of my heart. Does that ever happen in your life? A little bit of Cain in me, dismissive in correction, neglectful in warning, a stubborn refusal to change course. But not only that, the text tells us that Cain was vengeful in his response. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You ever thought about the fact that, that the anger in your heart uh, the hatred in your heart, the sin that, that's manifesting itself, that's beginning to grow in your life, do you, do you understand that that has to go someplace? It can't just live in your heart. When I talk to people who say, well, yeah, I, I have some of those thoughts every once in a while, but I just, I just suppress them, I just push them down, I, just, I don't let them get the best of me, I, I, you know, I, I just kind of figure out a way that I can control it. You know what? That's simply burying your head in the sand. It doesn't happen that way. If you really truly believe that you can control your sinful desires like that, I would really strongly urge you to find somebody who will speak truth into your life and to give you some honesty because we need to understand that that, that anger, at times that hatred, it has to go somewhere. It's dynamic. It's not static. And it cannot be simply controlled by our own will or our own power anymore that Cain could control his anger when he rejected God's advice. That anger was still there. That hatred was still brewing in its heart. And he was going to find an outlet for it somewhere. The tragedy is that he found it with his little brother, Abel. If you're a student of history, if you're a student of the 20th century, if you've read it all, uh, the story and the life of Adolf Hitler, uh, one of the things that you're struck by is at the end of World War I, as he, as he lay in a bed convalescing over the wounds he had received, and he was reading of the, the Treaty of Versailles that, that basically stripped Germany of, of any and all of its resources and, it, and its power, the anger that began to boil inside of his heart. The reaction that he had was a violent reaction that played itself out, as history tells us, in the murder of millions of people in a world uh, at war. Now, that's, that's the extreme 
of how our sin has to go someplace. But trust me when I tell you that Cain's vengeful response is simply a reflection of something that's in your heart and my heart as well. Sin has to go and live somewhere. It has to work its way out. Next thing I want us to see about Cain is that he's dishonest in confrontation. Look at verse 9 for just a moment. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You see within Cain uh, this conflict within the, uh, within the human heart, uh, this desire to be seen as right even when we know we're wrong. And the way Cain resolved it is simply to offer a lie to God. I don't know where he is. Am I, am I supposed to be responsible for him? Last time I checked, I wasn't in charge of Abel. You know, he offers a, not only a dishonest answer, but a flippant dishonest answer. And you can see within his heart this desire to, to be okay, to be right, but that leads him to a bad conclusion that he's just going to make up a story that isn't true. Uh, for those of you that are a little bit older parents, uh, like me or maybe even a little bit older, you've entered into this stage in your life where your adult children begin to tell you stories of what they did when they were kids. <laughs> and some of those are really delightful and fun, and others of those you just go, God, thank you they're still alive. <laughs> thank you they're still walking around the planet. How could they have possibly done that? And then I remember the stories I began to tell my parents in my 20s and 30s, and some I still haven't told them to this day. But... Um, we were, uh, we were reflecting one, and this is probably, I don't know, two, three years ago. We were reflecting on how uh, Nathan, our oldest child, how, how he uh, didn't get his progress reports all the time. And those are mailed home. Those come straight from the school. How, how did ours seem to get lost in the mail from time to time? And, you know, we get busy and say, you know, Nate, we didn't find your progress report in the mail. He'd say, oh, I'll make sure I get a copy and bring it home. And we'd get on and he, you know, wouldn't bring it home. And we kind of forget about it. We didn't see the progress reports all that often. Now, now, the rest of the story is that he was calling his sister from school and saying, hey, you see the progress report that came in the mail? Yeah, take that out in the backyard and light a match to it. <laughs> that, was, that was the rest. Now, he wasn't a bad student. Nate, Nate got, you know, his goal was to get through life, to get all B's and not study that much, and he pretty much made it. But uh, there was something about the desire to be right even when he was wrong. And that's the same desire that's in my heart. I want you to think, I, you know, I look pretty good. I say the right things. I act appropriately. God, don't you, don't you see I'm a pastor? Don't you see I'm trying to work hard for you? I don't want to look at the sin in my heart. I don't want to look at the anger that's there. I don't want to admit to those things that I've done which have, have offended people and hurt people. Can't I be right while I'm still really wrong? And that's the attitude of Cain. I don't, Abel, haven't seen him lately, Lord. Don't know where he is. And last I heard, I wasn't responsible. It's the heart of Cain. But I also want you to see that Cain is self-seeking, even in his consequences. Look at, we're going to skip down to verses 13 and 14. God has, God has pronounced his judgment. We're going to come back to that in a couple minutes. But God has basically said, you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be a fugitive. You're, going, you, you know, you're not going to be able to be a farmer anymore. Uh, and, and, he, and he renders this judgment. And here's Cain's response to the Lord. Cain says to the Lord in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Does it strike you at all as disturbing that after God pronounces judgment on Cain, the next words out of his mouth are not a plea for forgiveness? They're not even a confession of sin. Does it not bother you just a little bit that he shows absolutely no remorse for his little brother? 
We have two sons in our family. I know how much Jordan looks up to Nate. He's followed him ever since he was a little kid. And Jordan wasn't little very long. He's a big guy. <laughs> he still follows him today. I can't imagine the disruption that went on in this family from this action. And Cain doesn't look back. No grief for his parents who are now have now lost a son. He's simply a murderer who's worried about being murdered himself. His reaction is, God, my, my punishment. It's about me, Lord. It's more than I can bear. Not only that, but he puts the fault or the blame at God's feet. You have driven me away today. You have driven me away from the ground. God, you're the one that's culpable, not me. Do you see the stubbornness? Do you see the hardness of heart? The final observation about Cain is simply this. He chooses alienation over repentance and restoration. Look at verse 16, which was the last verse we read this morning. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, uh, east of Eden. Uh, and that term, East of Eden, uh, Steinbeck wrote a book called East of Eden, which I had to read in high school. And from what I remember, there were a lot of parallels here. Uh, you can maybe, maybe look at that sometime. But this idea of choosing alienation over, uh, over repentance and restoration. When it says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, uh, that phrase it has a little bit of a nuance. We look at it and say, well, Cain left. He went somewhere else. The only problem with that, friends, is that that's not biblical because you can't flee from the presence of the Lord. What does the psalmist say? No matter where I go, you're with me. If I make my, my bed in hell, even in hell, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, Lord, there's nowhere I can go to escape your presence. So the Bible doesn't say opposite things. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Moses, as he's writing this, is making a statement about the emotional condition of Cain's heart. And what he's saying is Cain turned his back on God. That Cain rejected any relationship with God. He chose alienation instead of repentance. And he went away from the presence of the Lord, which was an emotional separation, which led to his physical departure from that place which reminded him most of the presence of God. He went out east of Eden. It's no mistake that that Moses wrote it that way. Because Eden, although it was now off limits to the human race, was the shining example of what a perfect relationship between God and man looked like. And every day that Cain would be around Eden would remind him of the choice he had made, would remind him of the offer of repentance which had been rejected, and so he physically removed himself. But before he left physically, he had already emotionally separated himself. Friends, that's the result of letting sin rule in our lives. Alienation from God, a dead brother, family destroyed, loss of home, and a marked man. I'm going to come to God's graciousness before uh, we're done. But God puts a mark on Cain. It's a visible reminder every day of his choice. I find it ironic that I have stains on my hands today. (laughs) Because it's easy to look at this passage and see everybody but you. (laughs) It's easy to look at this passage and go, yeah, that describes a lot of people. Good thing it doesn't describe me. This is the danger in which we find ourselves spiritually if we don't put ourselves on the page of this story and understand that that same sin is resting at our doorstep. And if we are not careful, if we do not live a repent 
life, a life full of joy of being able to repent and turn to God for salvation and grace, our life will go in a similar direction. We might not ever murder anybody. We might not ever physically attack someone, but there is a steep price to pay for letting sin be your master, and it happens every day. It happens in your family. It happens in my family. It happens in your marriage. It happens in my marriage. We allow the thing that's killing us to control us. In fact, oftentimes we embrace it. I think I've told you the story before about a woman in North Carolina that owned a python. She went out of town for a couple of weeks, forgot to feed the python when she was gone. She picked up her python. Oh, I'm so glad to see you and hugged her python and her python started hugging her back. And, you know, for, and, and somehow in our confused state, we uh, attribute animals, human emotions, which they don't have. And the python was not hugging her back. The python was hugging her. I'm hungry and I think it's time for lunch. So glad you stopped by. And it began to literally constrict to kill her. She called 911. The police arrived and they're trying to get the python off of her. And they're thinking they're going to have to use force and maybe even kill a python in the entire time she's begging don't hurt my pet don't hurt my pet the very thing that's killing her how many times do i go into my prayer life with god and say don't hurt my pet god i'll go this far but not that far and sin is crouching at my door and and the reflection of cain is the reflection i see in the mirror but i said we're going to run on parallel tracks this morning this story doesn't end with bad news it ends with great news i want to look at god's interaction with cain I want to remind you that last week God confronted Cain with his lack of faith and and offers a gracious warning. I'm going to read that for you. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but, but I want to read for you again what God said to Cain as this all began to unfold. Why are you angry, God asks, and why has your face fallen? Why are you looking downcast? Why are you, why are you looking so upset? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desires for you, but you must rule over it. God treats Cain very compassionately. He treats him with honesty. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't mince words. But he says, Cain, you know that coming to me in faith is the only way you can come, but you're welcome to come in that way. I don't love your brother more than I love you. You are my child as well. Come in faith and be careful because if you don't, something disastrous could happen because sin is right there waiting for you. So God, God confronted Cain's lack of faith and he offered him a gracious warning. And that attitude continues throughout the passage. God offers Cain the opportunity to come clean. Back at verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? It's the opportunity for Cain to say, You know what, Lord, I, I did a terrible thing, and I got to talk to you about it. Uh, when our kids were, were teenagers, our, old, our, our baby is still in high school, um, but when they were younger teens, when they were like 13, 14, or 15, and, and I thought maybe they were up to something, but I had no evidence and I had no proof. Uh, occasionally, I would sit down with them and I'd just kind of get close to them and I'd look them in the eye and I'd say, is there something that you need to tell me? <laughs> now, I didn't know what it was, <laughs> but they didn't know I didn't know. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times they'd go, well, yeah, I've been meaning to tell you. And, I, and I'd learn all kinds of, you should try this with, now, young teenagers, by the time they're 15 or 16, they catch on and, and they're way smarter than that. But, and some of the kids are in the congregation this morning, so I've prepared you in case your mom and dad do that. Say, well, mom, dad, what are you thinking about? I'm not quite sure. Um, but, but it's amazing how just kind of that, that peering look might, might get you some information. Is there something you need to tell me? And that's, that's what God's saying to Cain. Cain, is there something we need to talk about? That's what's found in the question. He's offering Cain the opportunity to confess his sin. Cain refuses, uh, obviously, as we found out. But Cain uh, is introduced by God to the repercussions of his choice. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. The Lord said to Cain, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth, and receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God says to Cain, Cain, Abel's blood is crying to me from the ground, and it must be answered. Cain, what God's saying, Cain, you now have to answer for your actions. It doesn't give me any joy or any pleasure, but Cain, you need to understand something. There's, there's something that has to happen as a result of your sin, as a result of you turning from me. I can't let the cry of Abel's blood go unanswered. It wouldn't be fair to him, and it wouldn't be fair to you, Cain. God lovingly confronts Cain and tries to explain to Cain what's happened because of Cain's decision. And even in the words of judgment, I think we see a gracious God trying to help this wayward child understand the terrible place in which he now finds himself. Oftentimes we mince our words. We don't say necessarily what we mean. And sometimes I think it's, it's better for us simply to get to the point. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with an employee. Maybe it's with ourself. Maybe it's with somebody else confronting us but saying, here's what has to happen because of the choice that you have made. And God gives Cain that information. Cain doesn't receive it very well. <laughs> Cain says he's still consumed with himself. It's more that I could bear. And notice God's response to Cain. God doesn't say to Cain, you know, Cain, you should have thought of that before you walked down this path. He doesn't say to Cain, Cain, didn't we have a conversation a few days ago in which I warned you about this? Now go on and get out of my sight. You disgust me. God's reaction to Cain's still consumed with his own self-pity is a reaction of grace. It's a reaction of mercy, even in judgment. Look at verse 15. The Lord says to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I'm going to go down a real quick side road just for a second. So we're going to take a left turn. Hang with me. A lot of people get hung up on the last part of this verse and say, where are all the people that are on the earth? I thought it was just Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And, and did God create other people in other places? And they, and they kind of let their minds run wild on this. I don't think we need to do that. Uh, I think Cain's not stupid. He understands that the world's going to be populated. <laughs> he understands that his mother and father are going to have more children. He understands that eventually those kids are going to grow up. They're going to want to take vengeance and that there's going to be a, a brother or sister or somebody maybe 20, 30, 100 years down the road who are going to come and find him and exact vengeance on him. So I don't think we need to see any mystery in these verses. Cain is simply putting two and two together. What we do need to see here is judgment laced with mercy. The God would say, not so, Cain. I'm going to protect you even in your judgment. Now, you have to ask the question, how is that so? Just a, a minute ago, God said the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground to me and it must be answered. Is God not being hypocritical? Is God not speaking out of both sides of his mouth here? Cain, you're going to receive judgment that has to happen, but you know what? It's not going to be too bad. I'm going to look out for you. Can you see Abel going, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened to me? How is it that can God put judgment and mercy together. And it's only when we understand the bigger picture of scripture that this is going to make any sense to us. As we, as we begin to wrap up here, I'm going to take you to Hebrews for just a second. In Hebrews chapter 12, scripture says this, but you have come to Mount Zion 
to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, okay, there's the judgment part, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's the grace and forgiveness. Why are they made perfect? Let's go on to the next verse. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, God understood the bigger picture, even though Cain didn't. God understood that, that there had to be judgment for the sin in your life and the sin in my life. But he also knew that there was going to come a time when there would be a cross and there would be a Savior and that the payment for sin would be rendered in blood. The perfect Son of God giving his life, the sprinkled blood of Jesus, now speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which means that he has covered our sins, that we can come to him for forgiveness that we can come to him for mercy. God wanted Cain to to be warned and to confess his sin, not because he wanted to to put him down spiritually and to do him harm and to say, you're a no-good guy, because he wanted to welcome him into his family. He wanted to embrace him. He wanted to extend mercy to him. But that mercy only comes through faith in a God who forgives, faith in a God who is gracious, and that is the blood of Jesus. I began our time this morning by asking a question, why do we have a tendency to embrace that's that which we know will do us harm. I think, simply put, and this is a bit of a simplification, there's probably a lot of reasons. At the end of the day, it's because it makes us feel good. It lets us know we're alive. It might be harmful, but in some way it brings meaning to our lives. And in many ways, I think we're like Cain in that we're short-sighted. And we can only see the immediacy of our circumstances. We need to take a step back. We need to take a deep breath. And we need to see the cross of Christ. And we need to understand that pathway to life through repentance and God's forgiveness and God's grace. His grace is sufficient. And he calls out to each one of us this morning, don't embrace that which will kill you. Embrace my son and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I thank you that we see you in, in this passage of Scripture. <laughs> in God's protection, even in putting a mark on Cain, even in, in taking away from him the ability to till the ground because of his choices. Yet there is mercy and there is grace. There is compassion. And Father, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if we're, if we're going to stop pretending for a minute and we're going to deal with reality, when we look in the mirror, we will see Cain looking back. But Father, that is not the end of the story. It is not your intention to do us spiritual harm. It is your intention to give us spiritual life. And when we come to the cross of Christ, the blood that is sprinkled, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are free of remorse. We are freed from having to defend our actions. We're freed from having to lie about what we've done. We can simply confess. And we can come to you for life, for a new life. So the next time we look in the mirror, 
We see Jesus looking back. Amen.